Welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the Emily Program and Veritas Collaborative. Piecemeal covers topics related to eating disorders, body image, and how society may influence our thinking. Please use your discretion when listening and speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lambert. We're thrilled to share another recovery story with you today. Erin Werner is here to tell us hers. Erin is a mental health administrator at an outpatient clinic and a student. She has also served the wedding industry for seven years as a freelance makeup artist and ordained minister. When she finds free time, her biggest passions are being present with her loved ones, photography, listening to podcasts, and all things cooking and baking, except the dishes. I'm so with you there. We so appreciate you being here, Erin. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. I'm thrilled to be here. You are welcome. So to get us started, let's sort of dive in. Let's talk a bit about the history of your relationship with food. So looking back, when do you remember food becoming or or being an issue growing up? And how did that affect your relationship with your body? I would actually say it happened in reverse. It was my relationship with my body that stemmed my issues with my relationship with food. So I'm 30. And I think many people around my age can remember going to the grocery store with their parents and seeing the rows and rows of magazines, you know, worst beach bodies. And, you know, she used to look so good and just, you know, misogyny and body shaming these, you know, beautiful, normal looking women for, you know, having internal organs, you know, and sitting like they do for having a little bit of cellulite or, you know, purposely taking photos at the most inappropriate, unflattering angles. And so I became very aware very early on that there was a societal expectation on how I was supposed to look and what I, you know, needed to present as. And I would say that pretty early affected me like around third grade was when I started skipping meals. And uh, as I got older, I just kind of started engaging in riskier and riskier choices. And it came to a point where I was no longer in the perceived sense of control. Like we all perceive that, that we have control. We, I didn't. It was no longer that I controlled the choices I was making. I was no longer choosing too fast. I was being told I had to, you know, it, by that voice in my head and being told like, no, you can't do this. And all these like rules suddenly became, you know, apparent in my life. And that was when like my relationship with food really crumbled. And how, how did you make sense or, or not of that experience of seeing the messages, changing the way you eat? What was society's response to that? Did you, did anybody say anything about the way you were eating as you were growing up and restricting? How was the, uh, your experience in that realm? I like to think I was good at hiding it. I also know that, you know, I have since, you know, opened up with people in my life about what I was experiencing and some were totally like shocked, like, oh, I had no idea. And some, you know, very much were like, oh yeah, I knew, but didn't know what to say, or I didn't know how I could help, or I didn't want to make you feel worse. Uh, There did come a point where it was extremely, extremely bad. I was engaging in very risky behavior. And my parents, you know, had kind of told me like, you really need to see a provider. And I, I was still using their insurance at the time I was young and they helped me find a provider. I, you know, made that initial phone call and 
I mean, I just got to say getting therapy was the best thing I've ever done in my whole life. I have worked with some of the most talented providers out there and it took me at least four years in therapy to be able to address and make sense of what was going on with my relationship with food and my eating disorder. Because in order to do that, we had to figure out what was fueling my eating disorder. We had to figure out that territory. And I ended up actually working with two therapists, one for my eating disorder, anxiety and depression, and one to address um, trauma. So I ended up doing something called EMDR, which is emotion desensitization and reprocessing a trauma technique. I had grown up with some family abuse and that was very much fueling my eating disorder, especially the guilt and shame aspect. I think we all know guilt and shame is very prevalent in eating disorders. And when you are raised in an abusive environment that thrives off guilt and shame, that just becomes your inner monologue. And like, just quick shout out to all the people that are going to therapy. Like, I know what it's like to drive 40 minutes each way, like to your therapist, sometimes multiple times a week. I promise you it's worth it. I know it's hard right now, but keep doing it. I promise it's worth it because I, it worked. I, you know, we reached a point in my place of recovery where I was able to understand what was going on, what was fueling it and develop tools to help me cope and better handle what I was experiencing. Well, it's, there's so much wisdom in those words. So we, we understand that your body and your weight changed a lot during your eating disorder into recovery. What was it like to navigate those changes and any comments or attention you received about it in this society where people feel so free to comment on our bodies and so free to message what they should look like? What was your experience? I got sicker. I got significantly sicker. So I, you know, and I want to preface that saying I'm not smarter. I'm not a better friend. I'm not a better worker. I'm, you know, not anything better than at, at the current weight I'm at than when my body was, when I was living in a bigger body. The only thing that's different about me now is that strangers hold doors open for me and they smile at me and they treat me like I exist, whereas they did not before. But when I went through a very, you know, public body change, I felt like it, it was, I was in a meat market. I know people meant to encourage me and that people were proud of me and wanted to, you know, congratulate me and were excited for me. Like it came from a genuinely good place, but it happened so frequently and I felt like so closely watched that I ended up really restricting. Like I thrived off the compliments and the praise and I felt pressured. Like, what if I fail? All of these people who have been rooting for me will see me fail. Or, you know, what if I backtrack? I felt extremely pressured by that. And so I began engaging and restricting again. And the consequence of restricting is binging. It just happens. If you restrict, you binge. Um, and that was when I ended up engaging in bulimia was through my, you know, weight loss and body change was when I became very, very sick with bulimia. And uh, that was so hard to navigate because my intentions were, you know, I had in it when I was living in a bigger body, I personally experienced health issues. And it was like, I started getting physically healthier and mentally sicker. And then I was both mentally and physically sicker 
than when I started because of what I had ended up, you know, engaging in. I think that is, that's a, it's a dramatic and I think meaningful way to express that, that even possibly well-intentioned activities in the pursuit of health, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, that really the eating disorder is quite interested in getting people mentally and healthy and mentally and physically unhealthy. But that is, that is the, the road that eating disorders travel. It sounds like you definitely experienced that. And then once you, once you learn more about the factors that were contributing to the eating disorder and, and work through the, the, the work that you did in therapy, which again, I echo is just uh, so, so echo your words that it is, it is worth it. And sometimes it takes a lot longer than we want it to, but how are you able to turn some of that understanding into action? How did you go about trying to sort of actively challenge the eating sort of behaviors and thoughts? What was helpful for you? Yeah, for me, the main factors that fueled my eating disorder were that, you know, guilt and shame and a really powerful tool that my therapist introduced me to was mindful self-compassion, which is a technique by um, Christopher Germer and Kristen Ness, or Neff, excuse me. And that was a real game changer. And I also wish I had realized earlier that you don't have to recover alone. That shame and that guilt is so powerful, but it's, it just completely isolates you. And that makes it very hard to ask for help. And it also makes it very hard to make meaningful connections because you feel unworthy or you feel like you have to hide this part of yourself. You're worried how people will perceive you. And I had so many relationships where I was so carefully monitoring, you know, everything that was going on because I didn't want the truth to spill out. And funnily enough, I think one of the most healing things I've actually ever done is connect with other people who were going through recovery or have recovered. I've since developed some incredible friendships with people who have recovered. And there is nothing more powerful than being able to like call out an eating disorder behavior and be like, this just feels completely stupid and I hate it and I don't like it. And it makes me feel nuts. And for them to actually understand and be like, yeah, that's so stupid, right? Like to, to know that someone has gone through something that has for so long been so isolated and so hidden through that, you know, that shame, just to know that you're not alone is incredibly powerful. Absolutely. That is so well said. I think we, we emphasize that a lot, that eating disorders are so isolating and they are experienced as so such a common theme. People feel like I'm so alone and nobody will understand this. And what a beautiful thing it is when somebody else says, oh yeah, I get that. It's, you know, so many things, but it's just amazing the support and connection that can come from sharing that information and being, being seen and understood. That it sounds like that kind of support and, and being seen and the self-kindness and self-compassion, not self-criticism, is what made a difference for you. And sometimes we think, you know, self-criticism is what will motivate us and the media and society is full of ways to help us to believe that. But, but research and, you know, hear your story really illustrates otherwise that self-compassion really is more helpful. So tell us more about mindful self-compassion and what lessons you've learned from, from practicing it and how you learn to lean in when it's hard, because it's hard to go from a 
self-critical stance to a self-compassionate stance. Some people really struggle with that feeling of, is this, is this okay? Yeah. When my therapist, her name is Carly Brown Cody. She is absolutely incredible. I believe she was connected with the Emily program at one point in time. Carly, if you're listening, you remember how much I hated mindful self-compassion. I hated it. I hated it so much. She'd send me home with homework or she'd send me the guided meditations. I'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll do this and totally wouldn't do it. And she knows that because when you are coming from a place of such low worth and guilt and shame, and you're almost at war with yourself, the idea of being kind to yourself is so unbelievably hard. It was so very, very hard. But the way to think about it is that like, when, like if my loved one came to me and was upset about something that happened, I wouldn't just dump on them. I would never do that. I would listen to them. I would offer them encouragement. I would soothe them with other tools I had and, you know, just be present with them and not make them feel worse about the situation. And so that's kind of the premise of mindful self-compassion. It's that turning the, the term is loving awareness towards yourself. And you turn that loving awareness towards yourself and through that self-compassion, your capacity to comfort and to, you know, soothe and to regulate yourself expands. And so people who, you know, use mindful self-compassion often have lower levels of, you know, anxiety or dysregulation. They're able to cope with difficult experiences or emotional experiences better because they just have a deeper well. They have this deeper you know, well of being able to care for themselves in those really difficult situations and not just fly off the handle and go immediately to, I'm such a screw up or I mess everything up or this is never going to work. I beat myself up for a really long time and it got me nowhere. So you have nothing to lose just trying to be as nice to yourself as you would to like your best friend or your partner or anyone else that you care about. Trying towards some of that loving self-awareness to you. I love that idea, right? You have nothing to lose by trying to be kinder to yourself. And I find that curious when we think about how hard it is to do that. It's really being vulnerable enough with with yourself to be kind, just like being vulnerable with somebody else to let them know how you're feeling or somebody who was vulnerable with you to let you know how they're feeling. That really inspires that empathy and supportive response. So it is a It's a hard first step and it can be incredibly, as you're describing, incredibly rewarding. I also think mindful self-compassion because it uses a lot of guided meditations and kind of, I guess I would describe it as like a body scan when you're doing that guided meditation and like listening to what's happening within yourself. And as someone, at least in my experience of a trauma survivor and an eating disorder survivor, I became very disconnected from my body. And I think many people who have any, who have gone through those experiences could, could, you know, say the same thing. And so it is just hard to be put back into your body. It can feel very sudden or it can feel very jarring or just uncomfortable, but it's really important not just to redevelop that self-compassion to yourself, but redevelop your connection to your body, that loving connection and that appreciation of your body and how it serves you and what it does for you. You don't have to be in perfect agreement with every single, you know, part of yourself, maybe you want your hair to look different than it turned out today, you know, or maybe you couldn't find your favorite earrings and you're not wearing them, but that doesn't mean 
you're ugly or you're not going to do a great job today or that something isn't going to turn out right. Absolutely. It sounds also, as, as we talk about it, that mindful self-compassion is one of those skills that really can spill over into lots of areas of life outside of even food and, and body relationship, right? I think about all of the self-talk we have that keeps us from being, you know, being gentler with ourselves and being gentler in how we view ourselves and our bodies and food, but in, in many ways. So it does strike me as a very uh, transportable skill and, and transferable to many areas, right? Absolutely. Oh, yes. I have been in many situations since I have learned mindful self-compassion where I can utilize that skill set. It is not applicable in only one situation. Absolutely. So we started our conversation talking about your relationship with food growing up and then into your mid-20s. I'm really curious, how does that compare to your relationship with food now? Tell us about that. Oh, man. It just could not be more opposite. It is leaps and bounds different than what it used to be. So I currently follow intuitive eating for the most part. I'm training for a marathon, which might've been the dumbest thing I've ever agreed to do. So the only thing I am really mindful of right now is making sure I'm getting enough. I remember the days where I tracked every single gram that went into my body and restricted as much as possible. And now I'm making sure I get enough so that I can perform this feat that I am, you know, trying to do and would love to do this goal that I'm willing to give my best shot and will be happy with, you know, whatever outcome I get. So I am for the most part an intuitive eater and could not be more thrilled with it. It is such a powerful and incredible tool when that's something you're able to incorporate in your life. And I definitely had to do quite a bit of healing and tracking of my food in a positive manner before I could get to that sense because I came from a restriction background. I kind of had to turn that over on a 10 and instead of tracking again, restricting, tracking to make sure I'm getting enough until the, my body's you know cues came back online essentially. And now my relationship with food, I think about food constantly and because I love to cook and I love to bake and I'm obsessed with food science. And I'm just always thinking about different things I can do or things I can make. This last weekend, I made homemade beef broth. Um, it is not worth the effort. Just buy good store broth. Just do, don't do it. Don't do it. Okay. It's not worth all the time. It simmers on your stovetop. Um, but I used the beef broth and I made French onion soup and I made artisanal sourdough bread. I made two loaves of that and I used the sourdough like in the soup. It was incredible. And for me, there's so much power in presence with food and with cooking and with the intentionality you are putting into what you are making. And to then receive that is so joyful and also to share it with the people you love. If I say like, come over for dinner, if I like say, you know, I want to make you dinner, like that is my love language right there. Like I want to care for you. I want to feed you in that way. And have you feel that love and that attention, intentionality that I put into cooking it? Well, it sounds like a delicious weekend. And I love the, uh, the, <laughs> the idea of really having that relationship be so different, that it's the same you in many ways, the same food in many ways, but a really new and different relationship. And that there's always that, that hope for a, a change and a, in a different way. And that if we keep trying, 
it can can be different, which leads me to one of my last questions. You know, we know that that people listening to this podcast and, and other times when they hear people's recovery stories, they they hear what you're describing and they they think about your story, this beautiful, mindful self-compassion and presence and joy around food. And they think maybe, yeah, that's great, Erin. That sounds awesome for you, but that is never going to happen for me. What would you say to somebody thinking that right now? Practice makes progress. Practice makes progress. It is not like flipping a switch. It will take you time. Beginning and maintaining your recovery is hard. And there are going to be moments where you are frustrated, where you are doubtful, or you feel like you have stalled or been set back. I had a lot of those hard moments. And when I beat myself up about it, it certainly didn't help. So you shouldn't beat yourself up about it too. Guilt and shame will stall you in your tracks. And, you know, like I had said earlier, we don't expect perfection from our loved ones. And when we offer them empathy and we soothe them in those hard moments, then they are able to move on from those hard moments more easily. They're able to bounce back. So please practice doing the same for yourself, just as you would, you know, anyone else you love who was going through a hard time. And if you can work on that, you will find it less challenging to get out of those hard moments in recovery. The more you practice, the more progress you will make. The more I did mindful self-compassion, the less I loathed it and the better capacity I had to get out of those hard situations. And I would really encourage anyone who is going through recovery to get involved with their food, to develop a relationship with food. And I know not everybody loves cooking, not everybody loves baking, that's okay. But there is a power in making something and then receiving that, you know, everything that you put into it and then taking that in, that intentionality really goes places. That is beautiful. So, so well said. Your story highlights that practice piece and the progress piece and how intentionality towards ourselves really can help care for ourselves and help others be involved in caring for us and how that openness starts and sometimes is the hardest with ourselves. Thank you so much, Erin, for sharing your story and for sharing the, the beautiful pieces that were helpful to you, the parts that were hard and how it, it is today. And we look forward to thinking about all the amazing things you, that you're making and uh, selfishly hope to someday experience those. So, Oh, I love it. I love it. Absolutely. I will cook for anyone, any chance I get. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate you spending your time with us today. Thank you for the invitation. If you enjoyed today's episode of Piecemeal, please subscribe, rate, or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Learn more about us at emilyprogram.com and veritascollaborative.com or search Emily Program and Veritas Collaborative on social media. Piecemeal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Until next time, take care. Thanks for listening.